This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Future of Cybercrime podcast. Today, I have with me Alex Tilly, Asia-Pacific Intelligence Research Head at Dell SecureWorks, and so much more. Some of Alex Tilly's background is actually quite interesting. So not only has Alex 25 plus years, hopefully I'm, I'm there with you, Alex, on that, of experience in cybersecurity, but also he was on the scene when we saw some of the first phishing and malware really grew with it in the banking industry. And then slowly but surely moved on into working with law enforcement. So we have someone here today that is well-versed in cybersecurity in the financial vertical, as well as the public vertical, that being just federal cybersecurity. Alex, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So I know there's so much more about you that I haven't yet told the guests. Do you mind giving us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. Basically, all I know is bad things on the internet. Um, it's, I've, I've sort of built a, a strange career around it. I started out doing a philosophy degree, which I dropped out of. And then I did networking and started working at online casinos, doing security on online casinos. So that was a bit of fun. I was, you know, I was 18 years old doing shift work at a casino online trying to deal with hackers back in the olden days. And then when I went into banking, yeah, as you said, sort of I was doing network security and banking. And then I moved into a more cybersecurity role when cybersecurity actually started to become a thing. So back in those days, there wasn't phishing. There wasn't really malware. There was viruses. We called them viruses back in those days. But then I sort of like to say that I started in anti-cybercrime at the same time as most of the criminals started in doing cybercrime. So we all sort of learned together um, in our different aspects of, of this world. And then, yeah, after a long time in banking, I was asked to join what we call the Australian Federal Police, which is the equivalent to the FBI or the NCA in the UK. And we started a banking investigation team around cybercrime. So I sort of, I was a tech and I became the senior tech for cybercrime research. And did all the mucky jobs, um, all the breaches and trial protection work and all kinds of stuff for many years. And then, yeah, just, you know, it was time to, to move on. And then I'd always worked with SecureWorks with their research arm and they were a big supporter of law enforcement and still are. And they were like, do you want to come and work with us and sort of head up our Australian stuff? And I was like, yeah, for sure. So now I sort of, I've branched out. I do all the crime stuff, but I also do the state sponsored stuff and all kinds of other stuff. So it's a, it's a really interesting job as much as I get paid to research and talk to people like yourself, which is kind of fun. So, but yeah, I, I don't think I can really do anything else in my life. I seem, seem to only know bad things on the internet, <laughs> but that's all right. Look, that's enough to do. To fight cybercrime is just enough. Some people will spend their existence doing so many other things and they'll spend a lot of time on it. And that's why we're here today, because that's what you spend your time on. With that being said, how would you summarize the state of cybercrime today? From where you evolved from in your career? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a big question, but I'll be succinct. I think it's very mature. I think what we're seeing now is, and anyone who's done crime work, either through law enforcement or crime research, knows that criminal experience 
leads to more sophistication and more creativity in their crimes, if that makes sense. They sort of get a, a bigger bag of criminal mm-hmm. tools and techniques and tactics to work from. So I think at the very top levels and even some of the sort of middling levels, the experience that they've gained over the last you know, 20, 25 years has led to them being very, very well versed in how to pivot to do their crimes. So as we as defenders try and stop them, they've still got a big bag of tricks to use to get around our defenses. So I think we sort of see that in things like business email compromise, which is the, you know, the email scams and the sort of the invoice alteration and stuff like that, where it's there's so many different ways to do what we sort of put under that umbrella that because they've been doing that those scams and those contracts and those technical attacks for so long that we can't put them into a single bucket. So I think definitely it's mature is the word that I would use, which is not a great thing. Mm. Mature from where you started. I can understand that because cybersecurity as a discipline has also gained maturity in that same time frame. What's interesting to me is that you said that they have a bag of tricks. And oftentimes what we hear about cybercrime is that cyber criminals, they being cyber actors in the threat realm, are utilizing vulnerabilities that are already known. The bag of tricks are tricks that they're using that they already know they can do and they just rely on what seems to be people's weak spots. Would you say there are tricks I'm missing? Or are you saying are these tactics and techniques that are the tricks? I like to say that you don't need new and cool when old and dumb still works. And I think as an industry, we like to focus on the brand new cool stuff and the new zero days and the new malware families and all that sort of stuff. But what criminals care about is making money, right? Or whatever their aim may be, normally it's making money. So if an old and dumb attack will still work, why would they bother learning a new technique in, in as much as, you know, for that particular aim? So I think that's why we still see what we would class as dumb phishing. You know, you still see the poor, some poorly worded emails with bad links and all that sort of stuff because every now and then it'll work, you know, and you don't need to pay $20,000 on an underground forum for a zero day in someone's net scaler if you can get that same money using a, a dumb phishing email. <laughs> so I yeah. think we sort of, we often think that they care about the brand new cool stuff as much as we do because obviously we're technologists and that's sort of the things that we find interesting. But I think the criminals just want to make money and they'll do whatever they can to make money. Yeah, if the process ain't broke, don't break it. So, right, exactly. <laughs> that's <Yep>. about it. <laughs> so let's take this from a threat intel angle. They've grown more sophisticated. So has the discipline of cybersecurity. What, how would you describe the state of cybercrime threat intelligence today? Yeah, I think as a discipline, it's getting there. And I can only talk about it from my point of view. You get intelligence training in government organizations to do intelligence in a certain way. And I think there's a lot of people who are coming out of government who are bringing that intelligence training and that sort of maturity of of the practice to private industry, which is really great. I think there's not a lot of private intelligence training that helps people understand the intelligence life cycle and how to, you know, develop and generate and, you know, uh, respond to intelligence. So I think there's a little bit of a gap there, I think, where people in sort of private industry maybe don't have access to the you know, formal intelligence training that sort of people in government did. Now, what that breeds is there's a sort of a difference in opinion of how to do intelligence and what intelligence means. I think a lot of organizations that I deal with are wonderful and very, very mature but they sometimes don't quite understand that intelligence life cycle and how to generate and consume intelligence. So I think Mm -hmm. we're getting there, definitely. We're definitely getting there, but I think there's a little bit of a gap there around training. We do really, really good technical training and we do really, really good management training. But I think if you say, okay, I want to Google proper intelligence training, 
there's a little bit of a gap there as to how to train your staff to properly do intelligence. But we're getting there. The getting there part, how? There's a few organizations that are popping up. And as I said, as these people who have had formal government training in, in intelligence generation and consumption are coming out into private industry, they're starting to spread that message and sort of say, well, no, this is how we do it in government. <laughs> Whether mm-hmm. that's the correct approach or not, I wouldn't dare to have that sort of hubris. But it is about saying, hey, this is an approach that has been proven to work over many years. Let's start doing it this way and I'll train you up. So I think that's helping. And I think there are a few small startups and some of the larger training vendors are starting to, to understand that there is that gap there. But yeah, I think we're getting there. All right. Well, let's move on to what security practitioners in, let's focus on the private sector for now, or we can take it from a general standpoint, are doing wrong. What are they getting wrong right now? What we constantly see is, as I mentioned before, actually, that focus on the new and shiny. New and shiny does matter. And obviously, we've seen that new and shiny matters through the vulnerabilities of the last couple of Christmases. I think there's a lot of people who have worked over Christmas for the last few years with various edge device vulnerabilities that they would be yelling at me right now. (laughs) Um, But I think that laser focus on what's new and cool to the dearth of old and dumb. So, and I say old and dumb because that's what I am. Um, but I think there's that, that logging, patching, you know, the unsexy parts of security, the not cool bits that I think like when we do incident response jobs and I obviously I work very closely with our incident response teams and the biggest problem is, okay, cool. You've had a breach. You've had a problem. That's fine. Where are the logs for that device? Where are the logs for this device? And then that realization inside the company that, oh, we didn't log that field because of whatever. Or So a really basic example, shall I say, you put in a web server and for some reason, you don't turn on the X forwarded for section, which is like a, it's part of the logging, right? It sort of logs what IP address actually came from. So then when the incident responder or your own internal security team comes to investigate a breach, the source IP of the breach is just your load balancer. You know what I mean? So you can't actually see the internet IP address. So, And that happens time and time again because five years ago, that decision was made to not log that and hasn't been revisited. So it's that case of set and forget, but then also don't actually revisit and not looking at the unsexy stuff because no one likes to talk about patching. No one likes to talk about logging. It's it's not cool, right? But it genuinely, it's what will get you out of a bind, I think. So I think, yeah, security people are getting that part wrong, where they're not revisiting decisions made five years ago and then not worrying about those unsexy parts. How often do organizations have people from five years ago? It seems that there's a constant rotation happening in security functions where it's just, it is the way things work and people are comfortable with keeping with that and not training up on the basics. The younger people, at least, is what I hear. Yeah, 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 no, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly it. So someone who is no longer with your company made a decision back in those days that is now going to mean that you have to work over Christmas <laughs> because you didn't okay. revisit what they did. <laughs> so yeah, definitely that's a major issue. What I'm gathering from this is that there are certain practices that have to be revisited, procedures that have to be revisited. The refresh is constant, ever necessary. And that isn't something that is commonly happening. So hygiene is a problem is what I'm hearing. Yeah, it's genuinely basics of security. I think, you know, I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man, but we get the sort of grads and interns in who want to do cool things, right? They want to do interesting, mm-hmm. cool things. And if the grumpy old network security guy says, no, no, can you go and check those firewall logs? It's not going to be highest on their priority list. 
some of the times, mm. if, if that makes sense, because they want to be looking for the APTs. They want to be looking for the big state sponsor stuff. They don't want to care about whether your load balancer has a time skew with your firewall that means that when you have to investigate something, the logs mean nothing. You know what I mean? Like these are the types of things that happen, I think, a lot. So I think maybe it's just because I see it happen time and time again where we don't do the very, very basics of security right and we try and do brand new cool stuff too much. I think there's a balance in the middle there. Are the basics relegated to tools? What I mean by that is do people over rely on tooling in the security function to take care of certain basics so much so that they forget the discipline of it? That's a really great question. So when I talk about cybercrime, for instance, and I sort of talk about how people are like, what do you mean you were doing it with grip and notepad? And, you know, and maybe even Excel if you were doing really well, you know, it's like, well, because those tools didn't exist back then, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not, you know, me yelling in a cloud. That's just sort of saying that we learned to, to go along and then we can use the tool for the proper purpose of the tool, right? So I think maybe there is a bit of an over-reliance. I think there's a little bit of a feeling that, well, if I can't do it perfectly, why would I even bother trying to do it? Ooh. And that's something that I think happens a fair bit. It's like, if if I can't get all of my logging, and I'll pick a logging in because it's an interesting example, I think. If, if I can't get all of my logging into my seam, if I don't have the right magic key and the right size license to get all my logging in there, I'll get it in there and they'll get rid of the rest. Because why would I bother keeping it on raw disk? Whereas just having those logs somewhere will help you when the bad day happens. So I think that sort of perfection paralysis does sort of creep in. If I can't patch all of my workstations, then I'm going to push that patch back to the next change cycle. Oh, this all or nothing mentality comes from what seems to be analysts not valuing the process enough that the small parts matter, regardless if it's not everything. How do we rebuild the want and aptitude in the security function to do these basic practices, in your opinion, in your perspective? I think we need to empower analysts. So, okay, simple example, right? You've got one of your consoles and it goes ping for X malware, right? And whatever the console is, whatever your vendor is, tells you this is commodity malware, right? So we have incentivized that analyst, in many cases, to close the ticket, move on, right? Image the oh. box, close the ticket, move on, right? Because that's how they're metric, right? But that analyst, if he or she is not given the time to actually run that down, they might not see that's part of an ongoing breach that they have that might lead to a ransomware event because they're incentivized to image the box, close the ticket, move on. Wow. And I think that's one of the things that I see a fair bit. And that's a frustration that a lot of analysts that I talk to seem to have is I don't have the time to run these things down. I'm not given the ability to spend the time. And again, zero to a hundred, right? There's somewhere in the middle is where you need to be, which is you don't want to spend, you know, 50 hours of IR of an IR retainer running down a single malware incident, but you also don't want to close the ticket and move on. Somewhere in the middle where it's like, just give me a little bit of time to have a look at it, see if this is linked to the other one from last week. And one of the admins found a web shell on a, on a web server two weeks ago. Maybe this is linked to that. You know what I mean? Like there's a, a little bit of time to do that actual analysis. God forbid we do some actual analysis. Oh. <laughs> time constraints, <laughs> expectations, metrics, job on the line, everything becomes a bit more capital and oriented towards return on investment or probably just meeting the capital profitability of this function. That's what it seems like. It seems like this discipline of critical thinking and analysis is falling short because of 
the scale of crime and work necessary for a small team of analysts to conquer with very little funding. 100%. And that's a very key point that you make. Resource dependent, right? There's not many of these analysts and there's not many people and they've got a lot to do. So I'm not, it's very easy for me to sit here in my chair in Melbourne and say, you need to run down every incident and rah, rah. That's very easy for me to say. But I do understand the reality is, yes, there are resource constraints. Well, I think my feeling on it is that there is that middle ground. Yeah. I think, yeah. The incentivization of, of closing tickets has led to maybe not that critical thinking, critical analysis, as you said. How do you handle that in your function? I, I just work really hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's great. How do you incentivize analysts with all of your experience and with your, your perspective? I think we as humans, and if we haven't experienced enough analysts, you get that spidey sense hmm. where it's like, wait a minute, this is the third one of these this week. Something's going on, you know, and you might think that something, something's going on here. So giving them the ability to say, if your spidey sense goes off and you think this might be more than just that laptop, his son used it last night and installed some malware on it. You know what I mean? Like that's a common use case. But if that spider sense goes up and says, well, wait a minute, no, that's a deep inside our network workstation in an admin function that's just gone ping for something. To give them the ability to say, I'm going to spend some time on this one, boss. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah, dude, go. You know, I think that we innately can sort of get a bit of a feeling for something's going wrong. And especially this is, this is, as you mentioned, the problem of people moving around companies so much. I think someone who's been in a company for long enough and in that function for long enough understands the baseline, right? You sort of understand what normal activity is in your, in your company's mm-hmm. network. So I think, yeah, that could be an issue where if you're in a brand new network every two years, you might not have that baseline so much. But if you've got a bit of time there, you'll go, okay, yeah, no, that's strange. That's never happened before. I'm going to spend some time on that. And then so your management function can deploy what limited resources you have because we all have limited resources to that problem. So I think that's what I do a lot of the time is I think I'm a little bit blessed that I've had a fair few years in this discipline where I can sort of get a bit of a sense that, no, no, this could be something more, you know. And when you do, you know, incident calls and you talk to someone, you sort of start to figure out pretty quickly, yeah, this is going to be something. This one sounds like it's going to be very interesting. You know, and you sort of trust your gut, I suppose, in, in that respect. Trust your gut and your experience. Two extremely valuable things. And you're mm. bringing that to the function. I think that sets a precedent for a lot of other leaders. Bring the value of your experience and your gut to the function and then teach and mentor analysts into believing in theirs as well and valuing that same time you're spending over there. It's a big leadership trait that you're espousing. Definitely. And I think... It's difficult to sort of try and explain to a new starter why you made that choice. If you know what I mean, like, so you get an indicator pop up or something flags and a console flashes and you say, no, no, that one's nothing, but this one's the interesting one. Well, why? Okay, well, now you need to sit there and go through your own decision tree in your own head. This is why I thought that one was the interesting one. And that takes a bit of time. And actually, it's a a good thought exercise to go through because it's difficult. Say, well, because of this and this and this and that and the time of day and the phase of the moon and whatever it may be, (laughs) I think this is the more important one than that one. And that's, you know, sometimes you will get it wrong. And then that is a very big part of, especially, you know, the work that I do and previously in law enforcement is that lessons learned piece. Okay, you made the wrong choice. Why did you make the wrong choice and how can we learn from that going forward? And to do that in a non-punitive way, because it's not about saying you were wrong, you know, and therefore you're bad at your job. 
It's about saying, okay, there was an incorrect choice made. There was an incorrect determination made. Why? What were the steps that led to that? You know, like I think I'm not going to get into it, but we, we can learn a lot from the aviation industry where they do that sort of disconnected, non-punitive, you know, after action report slash lesson. Tell us. No, get into it because this is big. I've had this conversation with a few people and they're always saying that exact same thing. So tell us. Yeah, well, it's the worst thing that we can do is tell someone who's made the wrong decision that they're a bad person and they're wrong. So that that whole punitive response. So in aviation, it's very much a disconnected fact-based discussion and documentation where it's like, these are the things that happened and this is what led to that happening. And that is something that doesn't make you feel small. It doesn't put you in a corner. It doesn't, you know, because again, so this is all human stuff, right? I've sort of, over my career, I've sort of moved, I'm moving more towards the human part of it rather than the technical part of it because I find humans very interesting. And it's about, if you make someone feel small and feel browbeaten, they're going to clench up and they're not going to learn. If you can do it, say, hey, okay, we're just going to work through this problem. We're going to see what happened. Then you get learnings. Then people actually are more open to accepting information. And one part of this, which I really would love for your viewers to, to get around cybercrime is with business email compromise, right? So, okay, so a financial controller in a company receives an email that says, please transfer $10,000 to this email, you know, whatever, to this account. That's the very basic version. And they make that transfer. Again, that innate human thing. They'll go home that night and go like, wait a minute, that was weird. I mm-hmm. think I've done the wrong thing here, right? So the second you make that transfer, the clock starts ticking on getting that money back, right? So mm-hmm. person goes home, thinks, oh, no, that was, yeah, I think that was a bit weird. But if I tell my boss, and this does happen, if I tell my boss, I'm going to get in trouble. You know, I'm, maybe I'll get sacked, maybe I'll lose my job, maybe I'll get some sort of you know disciplinary thing because I've done the wrong thing here. So they don't tell anyone. And then it comes out a week later when that money's all gone and you can't get it back. Had that person had the confidence to call their boss straight away and say, hey, listen, I think I've messed up. I think I just got scammed. That person can then call the bank and and initiate a swift recovery and maybe get the money back. But that clock is ticking. So I've seen this time and time again where people are scared to come forward and say, I think I did something wrong. you know, And that then costs the company more money than it would have had they just come forward and said straight away, we need to investigate this. This doesn't seem right. So I think that corporate culture around punitive you know, measures of victimization is what causes lots of damage. For the new security analysts coming into this field who are afraid to speak up and are afraid of getting sacked because they might not have the right evidence, they might not do something right, what would be your piece of advice? Just maybe one piece of advice for them. Yeah. So I'm not sure if this is in America as well, but in Australia, we have a saying of back yourself. So as in always back yourself to come forward. Um, mm-hmm. And if you feel that you can't come forward, because maybe you made a mistake or maybe you've made the wrong call or something like that, I think you need to have those discussions with management. And even I'm pretty bullish about this. I would say, well, if you're scared to come forward and say, I think I've done a mistake here, think about the company you're working for because you should be empowered enough to come forward straight away and say, I made the wrong call. Something's wrong here. Especially when we're dealing with, as we've been talking about, such uncertain things. Like this is very much a gut feel and experience driven based approach that we have, right? And sometimes you're going to be wrong. You know, the machine will tell you what's happening. The console will tell you what's happening. You then have to make that call in your head as to what that means. 
and hopefully with experience, you'll be right more than you'll be wrong. <laughs> um, and, and hopefully in your organization, you'll have the proper backstopping to be able to say, if I make the wrong call, it's not going to all fall apart. But the reason why I'm so strident about it is, especially in these days of ransomware, that can be the difference between people being employed or not employed, as in the other employees of your company. So if you can make that call quickly and feel like, hey, boss, I think I missed something, but I think something's going on, then you might actually save your company. And that's very important. Yeah. In school, we're often taught pass or fail. And everything's on a grade basis. And some people are just trying to make it through. Then they enter the workforce. And I'm taking this even from my experience. Being wrong means I have to suffer the consequence of being told I might have failed. And this mentality is pervasive because it's what nurture provides from the educational system. It would be helpful for universities to just build practice environments, collaborate, get it wrong, collaborate some more, and refine your chops. It's hard for people to think that they can practice once they reach a profession. It's just, it's not common these days. Once you get to go to work and make a salary, you don't have time to practice and screw up much anymore because that will reflect on your end of year report or what have you, perhaps even in your position in the organization and maybe will detriment upwards mobility. So I can see so many things in company culture that have to accommodate for making it okay to be wrong and rewriting that narrative from universities. Yeah, 100%. And I think in our industry, especially in, in cybersecurity, there's this concept of the rock star, right? Everyone wants to be the rock star and the rock star is never wrong. It's like, well, no, the rock star is wrong more than you think. And that's fine. But yeah, I think there's a, I don't want to say that it's an ego thing, but I think we do have this concept that there are these, you know, very, very special people that can't be wrong. It's like, no, they're learning every day as well. You know, we're all learning every day and the best, well, not the best way to learn, but one way to learn is from your mistakes. Yeah. Fail fast, move forward fast. What's interesting is that this narrative is not really big in the cybercrime underground. People are screwing up all the time trying to find an in. They just need one (laughs) in. They can just screw up so much and say, all right, I just need to not get caught and get an in. And the same thing should be happening for us. You just need to help stop something, screw up a lot, but just help stop something. What's the worst thing that could happen when you call, you know, cry wolf three or four times and you don't quite know why you are yet, you know, until you say, okay, wait, maybe I need more time to sit with this one. Nothing wrong with that. Just someone's got to tell them in a position of power and nothing's wrong with that. 100%, 100%. And I think one really good way of doing it is to build a network of trusted friends and contacts to sort of bounce things off. I think sometimes we don't, reach out enough, in my opinion. I think I've spent most of my career making very, very good friends, very dear friends by reaching out and saying, hey, I don't understand what's happening here. Can you give me a read on this? Obviously, there's you know, there's company confidentiality and stuff, so everyone understands how that works. You just sort of don't say names or whatever. But it's like, I think this means this. Do you think this means this? Because otherwise, I'm going to make the wrong call. And I think we need to, I don't want to say it so much, but it's like, you need to, we need to be better at asking for help. I understand. If it is true. It's true. Let's look out five years from now, if we can. If we can venture out even one year, I'm okay with that. But one to five years, what will the state of cyber intelligence look like? We'll start there and then we'll take the alternate view. What would the state of cybercrime underground look like? 
cyber intelligence, I, I think, will continue to mature. So one of the things, so we talked about how it is maturing as a practice and as a skill set in organizations outside of government, which is great. And I may have been a bit harsh when I said that it wasn't great, but it's getting to a level now where people are understanding. I think the issue that I often see is the consumption of cyber intelligence. So I think organizations that either reach out to organizations like mine or other organizations or have a cyber intelligence function inside, it's the maturity of now, okay, so now we're generating and we're accepting mature intelligence product. How are we actually consuming that and using that effectively? So I think that's going to continue to accelerate. I think we've sort of, we're hitting a tipping point now where the actual production is getting there. And now we're going to say, okay, well, I'll be using this effectively. You know, when we're getting this product from our intelligence teams or intelligence providers, is it actually making a difference to us? And that, I think that's the one that actually is quite hard. If you're going from a state of zero, (laughs) to actually go from zero to 100 on that one's a bit difficult. But definitely it's that, okay, I've got this down in front of me or I've got a feed, I've got whatever's going on. How can I use this to protect my customers and my organization? That's where we're going to get to now. So that will require a very well risk-informed position. So understanding what it means to the organization, if it's even necessary on a risk basis. 100% nail on the head. It takes organizational understanding of where we sit and what are we doing and what does this mean to us? And that is getting there. And I genuinely think, and it's unfortunate, but I think that ransomware has accelerated that. I think before the you know, existential threat of ransomware really became massive as it has in the last, what, five years or so. I think before that, organizations were able to say, yeah, I've got some feeds and they're plugged into the Palos. It's all fine. Now it's like, no, no, now we need to understand the threat to my vertical and my organization and my staff. That is now really gelling and it has gelled. And now it's like, okay, well, now what do we do? Yeah. Well, our opponents and much anything define the amount of work we put in. If you know you're going against someone who's not really growing in any discipline, then it's easier to just take it easy. But, you know, if someone's going hard in something and that's your opponent, you're going to go that much (laughs) more in your discipline to meet them. Oh, it's wild. And so I do a lot of talking to boards. And one of the first questions boards ask me, you know, company directors, et cetera, is how are we tracking them against our peers? (laughs) Yeah, they they love that. (laughs) Yeah, because that's that's how they gauge themselves, right? And it's like, well... Your peers are very scared of getting ransomware. So they're investing in resources, be it human or technical or whatever it may be, intelligence, to lower the risk of getting ransomware. Oh, we should do that as well. Yeah, maybe you should. It's unfortunate, but it's the reality. I can't wait until board members are literate enough in cybersecurity to say, what is the risk that this is posing to us? What are the losses that could eventually or potentially occur? And then how do we mitigate that risk? And then then they ask, then what are our peers doing about similar risks? Because that's a better conversation instead of let's copy paste, copy paste. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And so I genuinely love it. And it's easy to me because they're they're not my board. So I I just go in as the external guy and have a (laughs) chat to them. So it's easy for me to say. But boards have the most interesting questions because they're different as you're saying, that they think differently than technologists or intelligence people, whenever they think about company risk and they think about, you know, company existence. So those, I often, it's one of the few times that I sort of have to stand there and say, just give me a second to consider that question because I don't quite know how to answer that up front. And it's, it's great. It gets, it gets the different synapses firing. Mm, it does. 
I used to, just as a side note, advise a lot of, of end users on how to create their strategy on a page, uh, present to board on the state of cybersecurity. And oftentimes, what I would advise for a presentation would not end up in the presentation. And, <laughs> and, I, and I tried to wonder why. And I think at the end of the day, the expectations for a board are, are we secure? Yes or no? Give me the yes or no. Yeah, because they've got so much to worry about. They're like, I expect you to tell me the answer to this question <laughs> because that's not my, you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. okay, you better have that answer. <laughs> yeah, and... And all the other information that goes around it, we can only say so much until they lose their attention. Yep, 100%, 100%. I understand that. Okay. And then cybercrime underground, and we'll get more advanced. What are some methods that you're seeing in the underground, perhaps even just tactics? I think what we're seeing is the expansion of the removal of ransomware from the ransomware conversation. And by what I mean by that is the criminals have figured out, okay, this whole name and shame extortion data exfiltration thing works and we can make money from it. Organizations are getting more mature in their, you know, data vaults and backups and all that sort of stuff. So why would we even bother to ransomware them? Because that's not where the money is. The money is in embarrassment, is in leaking confidential data. That's where the actual money is. So I think we're going to see the expansion. And we've already seen that here in my country, in Australia. We're going to see the expansion of the same tools, techniques, and procedures, the same crime happening, which is the, you know, compromise, pivot, find the crown jewels, find the most embarrassing data, and then use the infrastructure that already exists to threaten to leak it and then to drip feed it out until someone pays a ransom, but simply without having to deploy the actual maths, the actual encryption bit, because that's always the end stage is that. And it will still happen. Because it does, it works very, very well at causing pain for organizations, that encryption part. But I think not necessary in every instance anymore. I think the criminals are figuring that out, that I can just threaten to leak this data and you'll pay me money. And I mm-hmm. think so. The business model exists. The tools exist. The experience exists, as we talked about up front. Criminal experience of compromise and steal data exists. It just may be going forward that end bit of actually deploying that tool doesn't need to happen so much. I think that's where we're going to go, unfortunately. But having said that, that does mean that the business can stay afloat, right? Because it's not locked up. Yeah. What you're also saying is that if name and shame works so well, then that means that customer trust, consumer trust, citizens trust, it's at the hub of this all. Because once an organization is compromised, it will be the inevitable for almost everybody. Once that does happen, trust goes down in that organization, profit goes down in that organization based on that. So I think you're saying something that just carries many messages with it. First and foremost, your brand as an organization will depend on customer trust and security is a big part of that. And secondly, that it's inevitable for an organization to focus on cybersecurity because they are so dependent on perception. 100%. And the problem that I think, I'm not sure how it is in the US, but here in Australia, definitely, there is like a screaming need for more cybersecurity professionals because everyone's realizing yes. these these problems. And yes. okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to magic up 5,000 new, very experienced cybersecurity professionals from where? Like yeah. these people don't exist. They take years to make, you know? So I think, you know, and we've discussed that around the whole analyst and that sort of stuff. So I think 
it's an interesting period because there's a desperate need for these people and these skills that there's a real shortage of. Everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. unfortunate. <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere. Talent pipelines are so thin that because people think that they have to be so technically advanced to break in. And then there are gatekeepers as well that require these insane certifications at the top and require all this experience that isn't even taught in universities. It's just, it's a little bit of a mess. And I think that <laughs> people are figuring it out based on desperation. And I think that's, yeah. What's, that's, yeah, desperation will sometimes breed that, won't it? Level one SOC analyst with six years experience. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's beyond me. I don't, I don't understand because once they get there, they're going to be like, oh, just one tool or three dashboards is what I'm working. I needed this much experience to be this bored. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear it's global. <laughs> yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Huh? Yeah. I get so much feedback from a lot of students just based on this. How do I break in? What do I have to do? How am I going to be good enough? I'm like, are you kidding me? These people are starving for you. <laughs> Find out what you like to do in this. That's more important because you're going to burn out at some point. That is so. That is 100% the key point. So I get asked a lot, hey, Tilly, how do I get in? As you do, what do I need to do to get into cyber? How do I start? And I always say, pick something that you like. This is a very, very broad discipline. Mm-hmm. There's so many different aspects to it. This whole cyber umbrella is a misnomer like this. It's like you need to find something you like, you know, and otherwise, as exactly what you said, you'll burn out because like, well, I don't want to be doing this. I want to be doing that. You know, it's like, well, pick someone that you like. Yeah. I was, (laughs) I was on a sim. I won't even say the name of this product, but that was my second foray into cybersecurity. And I'll tell you, I ate my weight in the kitchen. (laughs) <laughs> because I gave free snacks. I I was so depressed that I said, what I've got working for me is free food. And those were some of the goods and maybe some drinks that they had to offer in the fridge. And it doesn't help. It's a very vicious cycle. So <laughs> you got to like it. You got to like what you do. You got to like it. You got to like it. You, you got to yeah. like what you do. It's just, you're going to be doing it for most of your day. You know what I mean? It's, enjoy yourself. That. I suppose it's easy for me to say. That. Well, you know what? I think that's a good note to actually end on. You you touched on so much today and it was all necessary. Actually, so much that's going to help a lot of young security analysts. So I'll say this to all of the listeners today. Please do refer this episode to all of your direct reports, if your managers, directors in security operations or even just go ahead and refer it to your whole team because people need to hear this. It's better now than never to reinforce in young security analysts' mind that they can speak up and they can be courageous and it's going to take time to perfect a practice. It's not all or nothing. Thank so you very much for your time. Yeah, yeah Alex, thank Wonderful. you. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we're going to have today. Listeners, thank you for being here. Now, I do want to ask Alex one thing. Where's the best place for everyone to go to learn more about what you do and keep up with you? You can go to skillworks.com, obviously, but my LinkedIn, it's not my face. It's an old lady's face. It's just, it's a blowback from my law enforcement days. So hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm I'm there. I'm happy to chat to anyone. Awesome. Thanks again. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I'll keep in touch with you. And to all the listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do engage with us. 
talk to us. This discipline is one that's open and ready to teach all the time. And we're all doing this. We're here today to communicate and to learn and to collaborate. So let's start a conversation and say you're interested in more. We release bi-weekly on Thursdays. I'll see you next time. Thanks all. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.